Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Talking today, Keith, about Putin's Russia or it could be Russia's Putin. Either way, I mean, the man is a machine. He has made headlines around the world for decades now. He's been the president or the prime minister of Russia for decades. He's ex-KGB. He's, you know, former spy, hence all the operations that have happened under him worldwide. In himself, Putin is an extraordinarily interesting story, isn't he, Keith? Absolutely. So um, so Putin... Um, first became a, a Russian leader in 1999 when he became Prime Minister. And then the following year, following the retirement of Yeltsin, who was drinking himself into an early grave, um, he then became President. So he's been on the international scene now for almost 20 years, um, either as President or Prime Minister. And um, he's scheduled, because of his election victory this year, he's scheduled to remain in office until at least 2024. So it's a remarkable length for any politician. And even then, he'll probably engineer some reason or some way that he exactly. can be, go back into being <laughs> Prime Minister and then back to Presidents or whatever. And when he was Prime Minister, it was because he, Dimitri, his, um, the current Prime Minister... Yeah became president, but they just swap, right? They swap because you could only serve two consecutive terms. So he then had to stand down, but took on the job of prime minister, but with the presidency as the, as the power base. So he may do that again in 2024. I'm just trying to think. He was born in 1952, so he'd then be, what, just in his early 70s, perhaps quite young now by international leaders. You know, we've last week we talked about Duterte. Well, Duterte was already in his early 70s. So, um, um, And Trump as well, for that matter. And Trump. So it's interesting, you know, we've got a generation of, of older people who are authoritarians, father figures, if you like, even in a psychological sense. You've got these very strong father figures. So Putin inherited a country which was in disarray. So very briefly, um, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union um, in 1990. Um, and, and so Gorbachev presided over the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Bits of it all broke away. You end up then with this landmass now just called Russia itself rather than the Soviet Union. All the other federated parts of the Soviet Union are now independent. And the country was in disarray, complete chaos from 1990 for about a decade. Gorbachev himself was was removed. He found himself a president of a country that really no longer existed because he was the leader of the Soviet Union, which itself had gone out of business. So Yeltsin comes to power. No real um, plan to save the country. Um, they were just selling off assets. They took in American economic advisors who said, oh, what you've got to do is to privatise everything. So... For a decade, you can make an awful lot of money buying a factory very cheaply. Um, and so you do get these oligarchs who run basically running Russia who are buying stuff at dirt cheap prices through this process of privatisation. So Yeltsin um, has a very difficult time in office because he's presiding over chaos. Putin uh, becomes prime minister in 1999. As you say, he's ex-KGB. Um, somebody who keeps himself very physically fit, so he's very different from Yeltsin. Um, I know that Mikhail Gorbachev doesn't drink. I assume, uh, because I've had I've had dinner with him, but I assume that Putin 
is also probably a, a very small drinker, if at all. Remember, drink is what wipes out the Russians. That's why they've got a population problem. People are drinking themselves into an early grave. Russia is one of the countries which has pretty well zero population growth. What? Because, yeah, wow. because of the, the pre- prevalence of depression and alcoholism. So, in a sense, Putin comes to office of a keep-fit fanatic um, and someone who projects this image of youthful energy, very different from the previous generations of rulers that are always, you know, very much overweight and, very, you know, just very different from uh, previous generations of leaders and comes across as a very strong man. And deep down in that Russian psyche, there is this desire for a strong leader. Now, previously, of course, it was the Tsar. And then you had a very long period under Stalin, who took over following the death of Lenin and stayed through until 1953. The problem for the Soviet Union is that it really couldn't come up with um, a series of good leaders after the death of Stalin. One of the problems, if you run a dictatorship like Soviet Union or China today, is that there is no method for a smooth transfer of power. Right. So in, in Australia or the United States, you lose an election and you leave office. Um, in the case of the UK and Australia, you go out overnight. Your bags are packed and you're out. In the United States, there is a longer transition period. But there is this clear transition mechanism. In a, a communist dictatorship, as in many other dictatorships, there is no clear mechanism for a transfer of power. So so we were having chaos within the old Soviet Union. So I travelled extensively behind the Iron Curtain in the Cold War years. And it was quite clear that although the Soviet Union was very good at basics, um, so in other words, you never saw homeless people, it was illegal to be unemployed, it was illegal to sack people, it meant that... Um, All the basic issues that we see around us as we look out of the window here in Sydney, you know, we look at homeless people, etc. You never got that in the old Soviet Union. It was it was illegal to be homeless, Uh, so it was you were guaranteed that. Um, So this is the old Soviet Union, very good at the basics. The problem is that as societies are developing and getting richer. So they require a more sophisticated workforce. And the Soviets put their workforce into the area of making weapons and the space race. Now, we now know that the Soviet economy was probably about the size of Canada's. So here it is giving the impression that it's a rival to the United States economically. In fact, it wasn't. But people like myself would be impressed visiting the Soviet Union because you just didn't see the awful social problems that you saw in the United States. For example, it was always safe to walk around the streets of Moscow late at night because there were so many people spying on everybody else. <laughs> you were quite safe walking around, which you cannot say that about any American city for the last 200 years. So, you know, you, you ended up then with this very false impression about a, a flourishing economy. But behind the scenes, with the rise of the internet and computers, etc., it was clear that Russia was not keeping up with it. Indeed, I wrote a book in the, in the mid-'80s uh, which I touched on the fact that maybe the internet would be the end of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union could not leap into that information technology era, um, which, in fact, of course, has turned out to be the case. Um, so we now see uh, a, a country that is in chaos, collapse of communism, then you get this chaos for about a decade. 
from 1990 until 1999, um, where the assets are sold off, complete confusion as about what you should do within Russia. Everybody's there looting the country, so to speak. The people who did best were the people who, who used to operate the black market. In a, um, a, a too long to, comp to explain, but the Soviet Union had a controlled economy, an autarky, which would guarantee why you could spend five cents to visit the Bolshoi Ballet. And not if you're a foreigner, but if, if you're a Russian, right? So it was a, a controlled economy. Um, the, but within a controlled economy, you've always got scope for a black market. And so, because you've always got people... For example, a central committee would decide how many tubes of toothpaste were made for the year. May well be you get to November and there's no toothpaste left, in which case you've got to rely on the black market for a supply of toothpaste. Right. The people who ran the black market knew how to run capitalism and they come into their own from 1990 onwards because the government is trying to introduce capitalism big time. Gorbachev tried it a bit, the Klesnost and Perestroika, but it was big time following the collapse of the old Soviet Union. And so it was the black marketeers who were most skilled at exploiting the new economic era. Chaos then for about a decade. Putin becomes prime minister and then the following year becomes president. He then takes over a country that is in chaos and he then starts to set about re-establishing a strong leadership. So we're back really to the era of the Tsar and of Stalin and now we have the, the era of Putin. And so he took on the oligarchs You know, he was quite ruthless in how he put some of them in jail and whatever. Others um, seem to have unfortunate accidental de uh, deaths. And, oh, yeah. Hold so on a minute, but hold on. But he's meant to be friendly with all the oligarchs now. In fact, he's like, he, no one, nothing happens in Russia without Putin green lighting it, and he's meant to be one of the wealthiest, quietly wealthiest Because the oligarchs the know if they're going to continue to live, they've got to be friendly with Putin. That's mm. the way it goes. So the ones that were very difficult uh, ended we're up off. in Siberia or, or died, or <laughs> including those who went to live in exile in Britain. Is that where the saying comes from, you know, exiled to Serbia? <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, that's where you used to send the political prisoners. But that goes back to the Tsar's day. Oh. Goes back to the Tsar. Again, another succession of strong rulers, you see. And so deep within that Russian psyche, there is this desire to have a strong ruler. And Putin is doing that. He is providing stability. Uh, if you look at uh, the um, pictures of, of life now in Russia, you, you've now got terrible poverty, a lot of begging. And the babushkas, the grandmothers were out on the street begging, uh, which we never had in the old days of the communist era. Um, but you've also got a lot of, uh, you know, Western goods on sale, etc. Well, perhaps less so at the moment because they're subject to international sanctions, which we perhaps need to look at as well, uh, Putin overseas. But theoretically, um, it's a country which is now becoming a bit more developed. It's still you know, basically an economy which is somewhere between Australia and Canada's. You know, it's coming off a very low base still. So you had that period of chaos and they're having to recover from that period. But they are clearly doing that. And, of course, given the energy prices around the world, they are benefiting from the export of energy. Yeah, so I was about to say, what are the big ticket items in terms of the economy? What's propping them up? So they, they've got, they do arms? They do arms and they do energy. So that's helping to prop up the economy. Don't forget that most countries have an economy whereby... 80% of economic activity actually goes on within the country, including here in Australia. You know, we talk a lot about exports, but they, the exports pay for the fact that we want to import 
Apple products or Coca-Cola. Um, therefore, you've got to do a bit of exporting. But most economic activity, just think about how you spend your money. You're buying food, which is probably locally produced in shops that are certainly are local. Uh, you, your haircut has to be cut in, in this country. You can't go overseas for a haircut necessarily. So most economic activity is actually generated within that country. And I think bit by bit, Russians are becoming acclimatised. This new sort of, well, it's a bit of a mixed economy. You've got an element of free market but also an element of government control. You're listening to Global Truth with Dr Keith Suter. We're talking about Vladimir Putin today and getting a one-on-one sort of lesson about how he came to power in Russia because he really has such an interesting backstory as well as what he's um, done since coming to power nearly 20 years ago. He's been president or prime minister for that amount of time since 1999. I've just been learning taking all on board, Keith, as you can tell. Um, So he's gone from the KGB back in the day, but then he has not dropped any of his tendencies towards spying since he's come to office, has he? No, because that's all part of his desire to maintain control and deal with critics, some of whom may be living overseas. He's just dealing with them. So it's still very much a strong-arm approach. I think what we will see with Putin, though, is the re-emergence of Russia as an international player. Um, And so we're seeing... Putin now far more involved in things. If you uh, take, for example, his intervention in Syria, he's actually won a war. Remember the Americans lost in Iraq? Um, They're still bogged down in Afghanistan, whereas, in fact, Putin has shown you can win a war in the Middle East. He's just won in Syria. His client is President Assad. He's got no special love for Assad, uh, but Syria provides Russia with its only warm water port around the Mediterranean. And so Russia needs to keep the Assad dynasty in power in order to maintain that the military facilities at Tarsus and elsewhere. So that's why Russia came in on the side of the Assad regime with this so-called Arab Spring. Remember, the Americans were in disarray. They didn't know what to do in terms of uh, who to support when the Arab Spring broke out in Syria. So they supported some rebel groups, which might be linked to Islamic State, might be linked to Al-Qaeda. You know, it's very messy what the Americans were doing. Putin, by contrast, said, we will support Assad. We will help him put down all these revolutionaries, including Islamic State and uh, Al-Qaeda. Remember, they, they their power base would be in the, the Sunni tradition, whereas Iran and Russia, of course, are supporting a, a Shia leader. Uh, He's actually an Alawite, Assad, but that's basically Shia. So Russia said, we will look after you. Extensive violations of international humanitarian law, extensive bombings, etc. But don't forget the Islamic State had not won any sympathy because of what they've been doing both to people and to the historic monuments in Syria. So you've had very little criticism of the Russian violence within Syria. And pretty well, has won the war for Assad. Now, obviously, Assad will say, well, we did the fighting as well, but we're grateful that the Russians came in to assist. But what we're not seeing enough of in the Western media is the fact that Russia has shown you can win a war in the Middle East. Listen to me, Trump, we can win a war in the Middle East. So here's an interesting point. Why, or a question, better said, why does Putin not want to become friends with anyone else in the world? It seems like Putin and Russia keep to themselves a bit. It doesn't seem like they want to be friends with any of the the 
you know, leading nations of the world like the Americas or the Britons or the Germanys or the Australias or anything like that, the most, the most developed countries or Scandinavia, for example. No one trusts Russia. So how did that all come about? Like how did – why have they made not a huge amount of effort to befriend well, this goes back to the ending of the Cold War. So um, at the end of 1990, uh, 91, um, we had the, the reunification of Germany getting underway, right? So November uh, of 1989. Then the four countries that won World War Two, so it's the United States, United Kingdom, France and the Soviet Union, had a right to keep forces in Germany, right? So the British and the French... And the Americans kept the West Germans under control. The Soviets kept the East German under under control, right? So you get the end of the um, the Cold War. And the question then remains is, well, will we allow East Germany to merge into West Germany or for West Germany to take over East Germany? And um, Gorbachev said, yes, um, we will take our forces out of East Germany but, and by the way, the British are still in West Germany or the western part of Germany. I shouldn't call it West Germany. It offends the Germans. The western part of Germany, we've still got forces in Gütersloh. So the British are still there. The Americans certainly are still there. If you're wounded in Iraq or Afghanistan, they fly you to Germany for medical treatment on an American base. So the Americans are still there, as are the French. So the Russians said, well, we will now uh, give up our treaty right to occupy the eastern part of Germany. But we do not want to have NATO creeping eastwards. He failed to get that agreement in writing. That was the big mistake. It should have been clear as an agreement between Bush Sr. and Gorbachev. Uh, Bush Sr. honoured that agreement. NATO never moved towards the east. However, when President Clinton uh, was in office, uh, he then proposed that NATO... This is towards the end of his time in office, proposed that NATO include now East European countries that have formerly been part of the old Soviet empire. And so the NATO border, if you like, is moving closer and closer towards Russia. And so Russia is feeling very paranoid that NATO is getting so close. And plus the fact that in the Clinton administration and subsequent Democrat administrations, you've had a lot of people who are saying, well, we've just still got to take on that Russian bear, etc." Um, and if Mrs Clinton had become president in the United States, we would be in an even worse crisis with Russia. One of the things about Trump, which appealed to some of us, is that he was trying to wind down the anti-Russian rhetoric in his election speeches in 2016. So it looked as though we could get a new era between the United States and Russia. Now, Russia is feeling more and more paranoid, and then it suddenly realises that if it's not careful, Ukraine will end up joining NATO, and therefore Russia will be boxed in, if you can imagine the geography of that part of Russia. Mm. So they simply said, well, in the mid-1950s, um, the Soviet Union gave you Crimea, we're going to take it back. So they then occupied eastern Ukraine, including Crimea. And at that point, you end up then with the anti-Russian elements within um, NATO and elsewhere saying this is a, an act of aggression, therefore we have sanctions against Russia. And those sanctions have continued in the last few years as a way of punishing Russia for occupying Crimea. My view is that there is a long history of this, which is simply not being well reported 
and not unfortunately not being well explained by Trump either, mm. but certainly not being well reported in the Western media. And so do you think Trump will succeed in becoming friends publicly with Putin and Russia? That's now a separate issue because, unfortunately, um, there are the allegations about the Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Um, Now, they may well have meddled. You know, the Americans have interfered in elections for the last 70 years, beginning in Italy in the late 1940s. We have a young American who has served a long time in jail, he's now out, who went public with the way that America interfered with the Whitlam government. A lot, of, a lot of Australians are unaware of that saga of the falcon and the snowman. So, you know, the, the, America interferes in elections, the Soviets, the Russians do. It's, you know, it's, it's what you do. You know, we, we in Australia interferes in East Timor's affairs. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> we bug cabinet rooms. So. But does Putin want to be closer friends with America? Yes, I, I think Putin would like that. Um, you've, you've got obviously a military-industrial complex in Russia in the same way as you've got in the United States who really want to keep their, their people buying weapons. They don't necessarily want to have a war because you lose one of your customers, but you do want to keep on instilling a sense of fear in other countries. And it's worth bearing in mind that Russia has um, um, a genuine desire, a genuine concern about invasion. I was was spending years patron of the Australian-Russian Friendship Society because I love Russian culture and I love Russian history, but it's tragic uh, and it's violent. But there is, there's a haunting beauty to it, along with the, the, you know, the weather in in Russia, etc., but if you look back at Russian history, they've always been worried about an invasion, either through their rear end, which would be the Chinese and the Mongol hold. There's a lovely story about um, Premier Brezhnev meeting Margaret Thatcher and uh, uh, Brezhnev said to uh, Mrs Thatcher, you must remember, we Russians are the only thing keeping Britain safe from the Chinese horde. <laughs> and he said it was so much force that even Mrs. Thatcher was speechless. So you've got the Russians who are worried about the Chinese coming in through the rear end and they're worried about the Europeans who are going to come across heading towards Moscow. Remember, Napoleon tried that. Mm. Hitler tried that. I think, though, those days are gone. Like, how would you really occupy a country as vast as Russia? <laughs> or I know. as hostile <laughs> in terms of climate. <laughs> I know, it's a terrible prospect, but yeah, unfortunately, deep within their psyche, there is this fear of foreigners. Fascinating. Dr. Keith, as always. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.